This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv. You know, that woman who's always yelling at you for something or other. And I am back here today with yet another incredible conversation episode. Today's episode is with Dr. Amy Pistone, a woman I have been following on Twitter for a long time and could not be more excited to finally have her on the show talking Greek tragedy. Amy studies Greek tragedy and women amongst, I'm sure, so many other things, but those are the main reasons I wanted her to come on the show and talk and talk and talk. It is utterly my favorite thing to just sit down, we have a conversation with these incredible academics and just have them just speak for as long as humanly possible. It is the best. And today's episode started out about Greek tragedy in general, but when I found out that Amy really prefers Sophocles, I was so ready for somebody to give me the argument for Sophocles. I am always all about Euripides because I've just always found a connection with his plays, but I also haven't read a ton of other playwrights' plays. Like, I've I've read a few Sophocles and Aeschylus, don't get me wrong, certainly the major ones, but I haven't read enough to make a full decision on who I really do prefer. I just fucking love Euripides' Medea and Bacchae so much that I think I got just sort of 
pulled over to him for those reasons alone. So today's episode is all about Sophocles and why Sophocles is actually incredibly cool, writes complex characters, and has great plays that obviously I will now be covering on the podcast as soon as humanly possible. Honestly, though, any conversation about Greek tragedy is a great conversation, so I'm just so thrilled with this whole episode. It was so much fun to record, so much fun to revisit when it came to editing, and I'm just, I can't wait for you all to hear it, which is, again, something I say for all the episodes, but it's just because it's always true. Conversations. Who's this Sophocles everyone's talking about? Sophoclean Tragedy with Dr. Amy Pistone. So I want to talk specifically, wherever possible, about Greek theater and tragedy because, I mean, as it when it comes to reading them, I do it obsessively and like Euripides is my boy and I could talk about him forever. I have some thoughts about Euripides. I, I, sorry. Like I, if- no, I also want that, please. Yes. I can, I can share, I can share my, <laughs> cause I was, I was listening to your conversation with Emma who I freaking love. Mm. Like they're super great. And we teamed up for a bit with reading Greek. Tra- sorry. I'm like not helping us get that, but, and there were a couple, I was like, oh. I disagree with some, like, I just like uh, some people's opinions about like Euripides versus other tragedians. Like I, I have some thoughts. So anyway, mm. we could we could maybe get into that because no, let's dive right yeah. in. Honestly, who needs structure? So <laughs> I I talk most about Euripides just because I like that his women are people, and I've also read more of him because also there is more. But I've chosen to read more as well. Um, but I'm so interested to hear your thoughts because obviously there's so much there, especially when it comes to what I do not know. So please, Euripides. No, so I when I started grad school, I thought I was going to be working on Euripides, and I I got all the way like wrote the prospectus for like what what I intend to write my dissertation on, and it was all about Euripides, and I was very um, the Bacchae and Medea were like the tragedies that really just got their got their teeth into me as an undergrad, and. I really thought that was what I was going to work on. And then um, after a year of just making zero progress with my dissertation, I was like reading things and I just couldn't get any progress. And um, my advisor was like, I think the questions that you are interested in are actually better asked about Sophocles. And I was like, that Mm. sounds, I don't want to work on Sophocles. Sophocles is boring. Euripides is like the cool, sexy bad boy of tragedians. Like, you know, you got Aeschylus and it's like very you know, authoritative. And, and I very much kind of bought into this, this framing that I actually think is Aristophanes fault, which is kind of a sidebar. But I think from, from the frogs, like he talks, you know, he, he sets up this, this dichotomy. And I think I just kind of bought that hook, line and sinker. And when I started working on Sophocles, I actually think that Sophocles in some ways is more, um, some of what he does with gender, I think is actually kind of cooler than I think a lot of Euripides is very flashy. Like it's very on the surface um, mm. and it's very, I don't know, almost sort of like edgier, right? He's like really throwing stuff in your face. Like, oh, the gods are dicks and, you know, we got women. And like, I think it's I think it's a lot flashier, but I think actually when you start to dig into Sophocles, there's some really cool stuff. The female characters are 
in some ways like really interesting, um, but it's it's a little bit below the surface and it's very easy mm-hmm. to read him as like, he's just a traditional, he's the he's not making any waves, he's friendly and he was just like kind of the neutral in between, between the poles of Aeschylus and Euripides. And I actually sort of um, have come around to, maybe just because I spent several years obsessively reading Sophocles, but I have really come around to thinking that possibly Sophocles is doing cooler, cooler things, more like complex and nuanced things with, with some of these kind of questions about like what what are these tragedies trying to do and I actually I actually do sort of think that Sophocles might be more more interesting in some ways I love that I think I needed that so what what a perfect lead-in now one thing so I mean I only I only first read the frogs last year um for the podcast and one thing I if I'm remembering right is it that Sophocles hadn't died when he started writing it so he had to write it about Euripides and Aeschylus yeah so what what do you think would be different if he had not necessarily picked Euripides or like had this fight between Aeschylus and Sophocles instead so I that's such an interesting question yeah if if Sophocles had been really like available as an option when when he was framing this whole thing (laughs) yeah um because I do I mean so sort of famously there's we never know if these are made up anecdotes about people's lives or not. But Sophocles was made a general for um, having like something, something was so cool and so civically great about um, the Antigone that they were like, we must award you with civic honors and we'll make you a general. And, um, and so I think he has a reputation in some ways, at least of being very, um, I don't know, sort of patriotic or kind of traditional in, in his values. So I don't know, even if Sophocles had been in play, like, I don't know if Aristophanes would, it, it's just not as dynamic as the that kind of superficial reading of, of Aeschylus as being very traditional and Euripides mm. pushing all the boundaries and overthrowing everything and being this kind of like chaotic nihilist sort of energy coming in. And so, yeah, I don't know what that would look like if you if you put Sophocles in, because I mean, sort of the caricature of Sophocles in the ancient world, there isn't, there isn't such a clear image that we get, partly because no one's fighting with Sophocles. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Aristophanes clearly enjoys, <laughs> enjoys engaging with Euripides. Um, and no one, no one that survives at least is a, like a rival of Sophocles in the way that we get like barbs going back and forth and we get people making comments and things like that's just not there. So I don't, I don't know how you caricature Sophocles if, if you're, you're um, Aristophanes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's such an interesting idea if he wasn't kind of this at like tacked on afterthought of like, mm-hmm. well, and Sophocles is here, but he's fine. He didn't want to fight with, with Aeschylus. So he's just hanging out. <laughs> Yeah, I forgot it is kind of thrown at the end where it's like, oh, no, because he is dead now, but it's not about not about them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's such a clever way to like, no, because he I mean, he wouldn't he wouldn't fight with he would fight with yeah. Euripides. Sure. But he would never want to he would never want to go up against Aeschylus. So it's he's just chilling. He'll just watch and it's not a big deal, which is like, a, I think, a very clever way to because otherwise people are gonna be like, what about Sophocles? Yeah, he's down there, too. What? What about him? Just so fascinating. All of those different. I like thinking about how they would have, you know, actually felt about each other and like those little, I think I learned more and more about Aristophanes just in the way he, like, I think caused a lot of trouble for Euripides going like down the line, even like, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about the argument that, that Euripides is not a feminist, but also I know that it all comes from Aristophanes. (laughs) So, or like a lot of it, maybe I'm wrong there too, but. 
it's, I mean, it's such an, cause this is, this is one of those questions, especially like my, my students always like, you know, is like, is Medea a feminist play? And like, mm. uh, I mean, I don't, did Euripides write it intending it to advance the kind of things that we talk about when we talk about feminism? I mm. probably not. I don't know, but no. I find that not a very interesting question where, you know, like what, I mean, I don't, I don't think Lysistrata is like a feminist play per se, but that doesn't mean you can't still do cool, interesting feminist things with these texts um, that, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so cool about tragedy is that you get people taking, you can take this story and take it in so many different directions that, and how you stage it is such a big deal. Like, you know, I mentioned, I was listening to your conversation with Emma and, you know, their choice to, to make this really about like genderqueer and non-binary and like, yeah, like that's, I mean, I think that's totally there in the text. But there are other things, you know, if you if you play it differently, there are there are ways where you can see this as as being about about family more, about, you know, that it's it's there's so many different motifs and and that you can kind of pull different ones up to the surface. So I think you absolutely can stage Alyssa Strada that is is in some sense a feminist play. And, you know, you can you can treat Medea that way. But like was Euripides trying to advocate for women to be equal? parts of the democracy like no, prob- no probably not but <laughs> no. but also you know we're I mean we're women actually running around being like I can't believe Euripides blew our secret about that we're all terrible <laughs> you know we're trying to kill our husbands I can't believe he told everyone now it's so much harder to do this like <laughs> no and I think for me because I yeah I definitely get that the you know there's not there's only so much you can put on to these people who would have had completely different ideals and like different completely different you know thoughts on what even you know was progressive for for women but for anybody when it comes to Euripides I find I connect with him and I like think of him in in my own feminist ways not to say that he was um but specifically just because the women tend to have like personalities and are complex and often like dark in a way that I like personally not necessarily that I think like Medea is a strong and powerful person I mean literally she was but like technically very much yes yeah exactly (laughs) but you know at the same time there's some darkness there but I think I love her just because I mean I love that story in general I just think it's I have no issue with (laughs) reading a story about a woman who kills everybody because I think it's great um but I also just love that she is like this real human in a way that I haven't seen that much elsewhere. That said, I think I read Antigone too many years ago now. And, you know, I, I haven't read a ton of Sophocles other than like Oedipus. And I think Jocasta doesn't play nearly enough of a role in that. So then I'd get stuck on that and all these different <laughs> things. So, you know, I think I also like, I'll admit that I haven't given Sophocles a fair shake just because of that. Yeah. I would say the, and I am always beating this drum and there are people who strongly disagree with me on this, but one of my very favorite plays is um, The Women of Trichus or The Trichinii. Mm. Um, and it, for a long time, wasn't something that, like, people just didn't work on it very much because they felt like it, like, wasn't Sophoclean because what people saw, and this is one of the things I think is so fascinating, like, what people see in these plays, because you had a lot of kind of mid-1900s, like, a lot of, of I assume, fairly wealthy, like, white dudes, like, upper-class white dudes. And they, like, they were obsessed with this idea of, like, the Sophoclean hero. And we have all these people, like, the heroic temper. And and there's all these about, like, it's the man who stands up against society and society can't handle that one heroic. And, it like, it... <laughs> It feels very like something Aaron Sorkin would write of like, you know, like, (laughs) and I I love, you know, he's written a lot, but like he has a very clear model of what the hero is. And it's a man who says the things and mm, very fast. 
Yeah, says it very quickly while walking around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there'd be a woman gives him something. Yeah, and she says exactly. hi. She says something nice. Maybe yeah. she winks. <laughs> yeah, she's she, she's a chance for him to develop his character a little bit. Yeah, and she, exactly. She pieces back out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and but like and and the trichinii isn't that, and it so people just kind of like didn't work on it as much because it didn't fit what they thought the Sophocles hero was, and I think that was one of the things that was the first play I started really working on of Sophocles and. It's such a cool story because, A, you have Deanera who is – so this is after the labors of Heracles. And mm. and so he's coming home and there's this prophecy that he's going to – and this is what got me. I worked on, on like the languages of oracles and how they're like tricky and like why why oh are oracles God. and Sophocles always super tricky and always misread was sort of the like governing question of my dissertation. Okay. Well, we have to talk about that more. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love that like – because, you know, he, like he was buddies with – Herodotus and you get like similar and like I just obviously I can never prove this but I like I like to imagine the two of them just sitting around talking about confusing oracles and just like you know drinking some wine and being like oh man like here's a cool like what if we did like a riddle like could you imagine like a riddle version that'd be cool um, I love that so much <laughs> right just like just like two bros geeking out about riddle oracles <laughs> but like the thing that I so so Deanera there's this prophecy that um, at this time that's coming up, there's like a deadline coming up. And like at this at this time, um, Heracles is either going to have an end of his labors or he's going to die. And so he's like coming home and she's like, oh, super cool. He's not going to die because he, like he's, he's alive. So it must mean that he has an end of his labors now. And so she takes these actions thinking because he's coming home, he's bringing a new woman home and she's concerned. So she and she has this like love charm she thinks is a, is a love potion um, from the centaur that Heracles killed as one oh, knows yeah. you traditionally you give someone a love charm when their husband has just murdered you so it makes perfect sense that, that mm-hmm. it... yeah especially centaurs yeah yeah no centaurs are generally very helpful amorous yes. people as well <laughs> yeah and so she has this he's like you know take this blood and like if you ever need like a love you need like a like a filter like a love charm or something um you know put this on it don't let the sun touch it and she's like okay just like remembers this um and so then because she thinks Heracles is safe she puts this love potion on a robe and sends it to him and there's this whole conversation she has that I I love because she's like I I just I don't want to like I don't want to hurt I don't want to be I mean she's more or less like I don't want to be like a Clytemnestra or Medea like Mm. I want to I just want him to love me like I want to, to I want our home to be good he's coming home to me and our son and I just want to take actions to make sure that our our home like he's gonna fall in love with me because the love potion allegedly will make sure that Heracles will never love any woman more than you. And the twist on all of these is like, well, he can't love any woman more than you if he's dead. And the only rest for his labors is that he's dead. And so like dead is the secret answer to all of these Mm -hmm. little riddles. Um, But you get this, like it's such an interesting treatment because she has such, she's like agonizing over this. And then she realizes what she's done and she's like, she's tormented by this and she ends up taking her own life. And, but like there's this kind of play with like, she's almost looking at these other mythical versions. She's like, I don't want to be those women who killed their husbands. Mm-hmm. I just want, I just want him to love me. And she ends up killing him anyway. You know, she, she lights him on fire, like, which is possibly worse than, <laughs> possibly worse than these like other tragedies, right? Like that, like giving, like axing someone to death in the bath. Like, I mean, A, he very much had it coming, but B, like, it's a pretty, like Heracles is on fire for, so then the, the actor who played Deanera becomes the actor who plays Heracles. And oh, so you wow. get that, that, like, that's the doubling in this play. Mm-hmm. And Heracles is, like, 
in the like the register that's almost only women use like this like super emotionally elevated register when he comes in and he's just on fire in pain for the second half of the play and (laughs) so like and it's such like it's I just think it's such an interesting look at at like the cost of heroism right that like that you can't keep that violence out there like that you know the violence always comes home with Heracles like that you can't turn it off when you come home and what does it mean to like not want to be that kind of woman and like she she becomes that kind of woman anyway um and so yeah I think mm-hmm. if you if you like like complex women and sort of dark in like it's such a great play and mm-hmm. and I love it extra because so many people were like this isn't this isn't good Sophocles <laughs> um so yeah I, I would highly recommend like read the Trichinia it's so it's so fun it's so good well, now I'm going to, and it's definitely <laughs> going to be an episode of the podcast. <laughs> the best thing about this, I, I every once in a while I'll think like, oh man, how many more years do I have, you know, in terms of content? And then I'm like, there's just so many plays I haven't covered, let alone all the different, like everything else. Lord, it's just, yeah, it's endless. So I'm excited to have that on my list. I also want to dive more into Heracles in general, because there's so much more. Like I've basically into the labors and the sack of Troy, and I'm like, there's just so much. Just so There's much. so much. Yeah. Like, and because you're you're digging into the Argonautica now, right? I'm just reading it aloud at this point. Her- like Her- I love Heracles so much, and I mean, just for a million mm-hmm. reasons. But I love Heracles so much in that play or in that the epic because um, it's so clear that Jason can't be a hero if Heracles is around. Like narratively, you just have to get rid of Heracles because he's like way too much hero for J- like. <laughs> Jason is such like a mediocre. Like they're like, who's going to lead this? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. Should we vote? And people are, like. This is your quest, dude. You have to leave. Like, the fact that he's just like not like we have we at the very least we have to get Heracles out of the way or Jason's never going to be able to be the hero on this quest. And even still, I mean, no. let's be oh, honest, he's, he's still not a hero. <laughs> I which like I so I, I taught the the organ. I they have a lit survey class and. Mm. And it's like my students come into it like, oh man, like Jason and the Argonauts, this is going to be great. And like, I would temper your expectations because like it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's a really cool as a work of literature, but like Jason, if you want like traditional hero adventure story, like Jason just ain't it. And yeah, not at all. And the Argonauts even are like the Argonauts are kind of it more than he is, but even still, it's just like a series of landing on islands and like briefly fighting people before they get to Colchis. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, I think it's just such a fascinatingly weird text and i i mean i don't i don't work on on hellenistic literature as my thing so this might be like pe- people may tell me i'm terribly off base but i think of it as it always strikes me as such a flex by apollonius that he's like i like anyone can write an epic about like a cool hero like anyone can write an epic about your odysseus or your achilles or your like watch me write an epic about the most underwhelming dude you've imagined. <laughs> like that is, that is how good I am at writing poetry that like I, I can write an epic about the, just the most average kind of hero. Like that's, like it feels like it's a poetic flex more than like, like the plot is very much this kind of like not super heroic, like Medea's doing all the work for him. And, you know, I, I, I think it's so interesting as a text because it's such not a very good hero story. Yeah. No, I'm I'm really interested in it more and more as I get through because like I I sort of skimmed it to do the episodes a long time ago and then, but I hadn't like read it word for word and um I just got to the part where Medea is like charmed by like or just like you know forced to fall in love with Jason and I just didn't realize it was going to be quite so heavy-handed in that like this is not Medea's choice yeah. like at all. <laughs> 
which I mean, I think just in terms of like the the flex of it, like to write a prequel essentially to Euripides mm-hmm. and to be like, watch me make her truly sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like, you know, you can go back and forth on Euripides Medea, like how you feel about I'm I am all for, I mean, I'm, I'm very much team Medea. Like I, <laughs> I have no problem with what she did. And but, I mean, that's another thing that always comes up with students of like, no, this is bad. Like, okay, but have you never watched like a revenge movie? Like, have you never watched a Tarantino movie? Like there are things that we allow in fiction. Like it's satisfying to watch someone just burn it all down. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, you know, I don't think superheroes should go out and do like vigilante shit on the, in real life. But I can I can let that happen in a fantasy world. And like, yeah, I don't think you should light people on fire because you've been <laughs> disrespected. But is it really fun to imagine, like to to see that happen as like a hypothetical? Like, is it is it great to watch like a really good revenge plot work out in like, yeah, of course it is. And yeah, it's so satisfying. It's so satisfying. <laughs> but like I yeah, I love that like because my students after because we read we read Euripides first and then when we get to and like I have a lot of students who bring up the question of like if she didn't have, like, is she still not acting of her own volition? Like, by the time we imagine, like, her her story ending in the Euripides version mm-hmm. of this world, like, is is she in control of herself or is she still being controlled by the gods? Because mm-hmm. if she doesn't have any agency, like, if she's being used as, like, you know, the intensity of her passions, her inability to, like, let this, this slight go, if she has been supernaturally made to fall in love with someone, like, how how much can we even think about blaming her for her actions? Like, is she, is she still under the influence of this? And yeah, I think, I, I think he does such a good job of making her really like this, her as book three, I guess, where like she's tossing and turn. Like, I mean, it's just such like angsty teenage crush of like, she's mm-hmm. go, then she throws herself on the bed and then she's like, no, I should go talk to her. And like, I, I love that scene so much. Like Medea in Jason and the Argonauts is just such a, a compelling, interesting character. And like, and you know, then, then you have to reassess how you think about Euripides Medea of like, mm-hmm. if, if, if this is like, do we understand how she got from point A to point B? And I don't know. I, I just love how much it makes you kind of rethink what you may have thought when you, when you read Euripides. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I feel, but just like reading into all the different texts, but then also like having conversations like this, you know, like there's just, there really is so much you can, dive in and like examine in these characters and that's you know that's even like just on the surface of the text for the most part what we've been talking about and then there's the whole other level of like the things that aren't in the text or didn't survive or whatever which is a little like it doesn't as apply as much when we got the plays which is kind of nice the plays are like a one thing you know and it's like <laughs> it is a start to finish thing that we have and that's kind of satisfying in the midst of all the rest of the mythology um but yeah i mean it's just it's so interesting to have that other side of Medea and then like written so much later. Well, not, I suppose not that. I mean, it was enough later. But, like substantial. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, it's a couple it's hundred all relative, years, I but I know I've been trying to think about that more and more, like drill it into listeners more and more of like, cause I think especially when you're not in the world of classics, it gets a little bit lost where, you know, the sheer volume of years that come in between so many of the sources that we know and so many times, you know, like Ovid is our our first like version of a story. We have like a coherent version of a story. Mm-hmm. And like how much was that known before versus how much is Ovid playing with it? Because a lot of times, you know, the like Metamorphoses is like our first really lays out some of these myths like beginning to end. And so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that version was out there before or maybe it he's he's 
doing his own thing and we just we just don't know a lot of times where because it's our first attested version but we have vase paintings that maybe allude to this version of the story so can we maybe date it earlier and you know so then when you're looking at these texts like how much of this is is Euripides innovation or Sophocles innovation or versus how much of this is the story that's out there and everybody knows but we just don't have any evidence of how common that version was mm-hmm. well and and then for Ovid too but especially with the playwrights you think like like even what you're saying you know comparing it to the superheroes we're like you know they'll take a story that exists but then they're you know making it into a fictional play it wasn't on them to keep to a myth that people knew they were going to play with it intentionally and but then now so often what we have is the play and so we have to base our knowledge of a myth on a play about how much of the play were they just totally fucking with in order to make a good story or to like shock the audience or so many things and I just love those questions so much (laughs) (laughs) yeah because I mean so I I love how much we have these superhero stories like that there's so much superhero-ish kind of movies and tv shows and things right now because I mean, I, I love selfishly because it makes it so much easier to to teach students about Greek myth as well. Mm. Because, yeah, you know, when you when you have a Batman, like, are you do you have like a gritty Christopher Nolan Batman who's like, oh, I gotta find Harvey Dent or whatever, and you know, or is it like a real campy Batman? And and you don't know, you know, you know some basic stuff. He doesn't have parents. He something about bats, whatever. He's got a lot of money. Um, but the what you how you play with the the elements of that character, and then you know, you get some of these things like. I don't know, the boys on Amazon or something or mm. Watchmen where we're taking those tropes and we're we're inverting them and we're playing with them. And I think it's such a, for thinking about what like Seder plays might have been like or for mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, some, we don't, we don't, doesn't show up a lot in, in comedy or extant comedy, but, you know, for thinking about what it means to kind of like play with these stories and okay, imagine the collateral damage of superheroes like imagine the people who just live there and like aliens invaded and their house got flattened like is anyone paying for their house like there's there's going to be a lot of people who are mad at these heroes and I think getting getting these stories that kind of play with the whole world of implications of when you have people who are larger than life what does that look like for everybody else and Mm -hmm. so yeah I think I think the like explosion of superhero media has been so great from, you know, I, I don't have to spend as much time explaining to students. I'm like, but who is really somebody's father? Like, well, I, you know, you know, it doesn't, yeah, doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Too hard like, on it. That's, that's just not the right question to be asking. Like sometimes, yeah. you know, do you need them to be descended from a God or not? Like we got, we got different versions. We, do you need an Odysseus who's like somewhat divine back far enough or not? Like, you know, well, use, use the version you need. It's fine. Well, yeah. And then thinking about yeah, the, you know, the way it affects everyone around, like what, what would it be like to live as a person in Thebes when, you know, there's a lot of shit going on because of a little something that's going on in the palace that nobody really knows about. Like, but then the people on the outside. And yeah, I mean, not to say that Oedipus is necessarily a great comparison to a superhero, but I think he's close. But kind yeah. of, right? I mean, he's like, because I feel like one of the things that kind of defines superheroes is like, they have like, they have like a thing, right? Like you, I don't know, you can <laughs> talk to fish or you can yeah. run really fast, but like kind of most superheroes, like you have a thing, you're super strong, you can see through walls, whatever it is. And, um, you know, 
Oedipus's thing is that he's he's clever, he's smart, he's he's a riddle solver. That was what got him to, which I think is the thing that's so beautiful. I mean, again, this is this is me coming <laughs> coming back to my like obsession with like cryptic riddling things. Oh, please, I was gonna do that the same. So, <laughs> but like his his heroic thing, he's not. We don't have really any evidence that he's like a great fighter or anything. Because his heroic shtick is that he's he can solve this riddle. He saves Thebes because of his intellect and because of not just being smart, but being like a flexible, like a clever thinker. And so, I mean, I think that's the beauty of his inability to see the answer to the riddle, right? His inability to see that his pro- the prophecy that he got was really fulfilled. It's, it's the same like, mechanism of solving a riddle that you need to, the thing that you think it means isn't what it means. So, you know, you said you're going to kill your father and sleep with your mother and you thought you knew who mother and father were. And it turns out, oops, you, <laughs> you have the wrong things in mind. And the same deal, you know, the riddle, if we think it's the, like what walks on four legs in the morning version of the riddle, like everyone thinks it's talking about an animal animal. It's talking about a human. And so that's, that's that like shift you have to make to solve it. And it's like such a similar shift that he would have had to make to understand the the riddling thing he got from Apollo mm-hmm. and his inability to apply his, like that, I think that's what makes it such a beautiful tragedy because like it's his heroic thing. He got brought down by the thing that he's best at. It's not like something, like it's, it's so heartbreaking that he just, just use the thing that got you, you became king because of this. Just use that same thing somewhere else. That's such a better way of looking at it. I find that very interesting because I've always kind of come at it of like, why the hell could you not figure it out? (laughs) You know, or like, well, you heard a rumor that the king and queen of Corinth were not your parents. So why did you not like run with that rumor or look into it a little bit? And like, maybe we'd have saved ourselves like this whole story. (laughs) So like, if I can, if I can do like a real nerdy deep dive on it. Please. What? The wording of what he heard is that his father isn't his father. Mm. And I think, and I don't know how many people agree with me on this, but (laughs) I think he thinks they're saying his mom was a slut. Oh. So I think, I think he hears that. And he mentions, so I I love how much, because when he, when he tells this story, at least by the much later point when he's telling this story, Maybe he's retconned his experience a bit, but he mentions like at a bar, someone was drinking and they said, my father wasn't my father. And I, I think like we hear it and go like, oh, honey, like, oh, you were so close. You were so close to figuring it out. (laughs) But I think he thinks someone is calling his mom a slut. And yeah, just an insult necessary before it is like it's at a bar and someone's insulting you. And then you go to Apollo to like get it, you know, figure out what the deal is here and you get this horrifying prophecy. And I think part of it, like it's such a natural reaction to having said, is like, I have to get as far as possible away from my mother and my father. And so like this, most of the steps he makes are pretty understandable. Like, yeah, don't kill a dude at the crossroads, especially a dude who's like old enough to be your father. But, you know, he's, he's, angry he's been insulted and and I don't I don't think that we're really meant to judge that too harshly like I think the idea of killing someone at the crossroads for like crossing you and and insulting you hitting you and stuff I think um he shouldn't have done it but I don't think we're meant to be like well you're a murderer so you have all of this coming like I don't think we're meant Mm -hmm. to judge it that way and so you get this like it's perfectly reasonable and then he gets to this place and he does this cool thing and they give him a prize and he accepts the prize and he he seems, and I'm a much more sympathetic reader of Oedipus than a lot of people are, but I think he's been a pretty good king. 
for like it seems the people seem to like him it seems like he's been a pretty good king except for you know the fact that he's causing a plague inadvertently but i i don't he didn't think, mean to yeah like it was and i think that like that's one of the like it makes it so heartbreaking because he's kind of doing the as best he can at every individual juncture but every he just keeps taking these steps towards this inevitable horrible realization about himself but he's he's kind of doing the best he can at those junctures you know like yeah is he a little angrier than he should be does he get a little defensive when there are suggestions made like when Tiresias has some stuff to say yeah like he could have handled some of this better but it's also not it's not that unrelatable like if someone you know if you truly think someone is kind of trying to come for your throne in a in like a monarchy kind of system you know it, it is it's a concern you do not you do not want someone to have like to overthrow a king and become a tyrant and all of that so um I don't know I think I think he's not he's not so bad a lot of times people see him as this villain and I think he's I think he is deeply sympathetic mm-hmm. I yeah I don't think I've ever necessarily seen him as a villain so much as I certainly when I because I covered Oedipus at the very beginning of the podcast which you know I want to do it again because of all the ways that I'm better now um <laughs> But I think at the time it was so much easier to focus on just how like obvious we can see it it is, you know, that like he just should have realized all of these different things for all these reasons. But of course, like that really, you know, that isn't like a fair argument on it. I definitely don't think he he's a villain. I I I mean the the road rage thing, I think, yeah, I mean, I don't think that we're supposed to think that that was all that bad. I mean, it should happen on the roads, you know, and like <laughs> You know, this is an ancient world. Theseus killed literally everybody on a road, just yeah. one walk. And for, nothing, you know. He takes a brief little stroll and kills everyone he meets, and he's fine. Yeah, he, he gets, and he's he, fine. The biggest hero ever, hero of Athens. <laughs> but yeah, so you know, that, I mean, that's definitely not supposed to to seem like the worst thing in the world. It's just so interesting the way that it's become, you know, something I think quite different, mostly beyond the world of classics and into the world of like I mean the things that Freud has done to the story of Oedipus and so many things there but yeah I mean he really he's sympathetic even if you see him as a dummy who should have realized all of these things that like should have been obvious to him you know because he's still sympathetic in the way that well all of that shit's pretty fucked up you know like Sotfocles very specifically like this is another one of my like low-key obsessions about reading tragedy is like this the versions of the stories that are repressed right we there are versions where the line of Oedipus has like ancestral guilt that his Mm. uh, crap father grandfather um rapes a young man who's and and that that there's this inherited guilt we mm. get zero mention of that in Sophocles. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's significant that he doesn't he doesn't bring any kind of this is what happens when you, you know, the the house of Atreus, right? They have they have this inherited guilt and it's it's going to there's going to be more bloodshed because they are dripping with guilt. Um and Sophocles very specifically leaves that out in the in telling his version of Oedipus where it's just why is Apollo doing this? You know, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's not, it's not that Oedipus deserves it. And so I think, and the other, I mean, this is one of those things. So I wouldn't say like, you know, sometimes people read him as the villain. There was a, um, there was a production of, uh, it was by Theater of War and they did a reading. They did a lot of, of readings of tragedies that were kind of, they do a lot of like anchoring them to current events and the idea of leadership in a time of plague. Mm. Um, and you know, which, you know, you can make, you can make those connections for sure. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people were reading Oedipus as sort of a Trump figure who like didn't want to listen to it. And, and I think this is one of the things that I think is so cool about tragedy. Like you, you can, it can be a very valuable jumping off point for, discussing what leadership in a time of of a public health crisis looks like sure that's there I don't think I think you're missing a lot when you read for that but I you know I think that it but I mean hearing the audience talk back afterwards and people were asking questions and it was I mean almost every single thing was about like you know how is Oedipus like Trump in ignoring what needs to be done to deal with a crisis and Mm -hmm. it's I I think that is I think that is not totally fair to Oedipus. Like not not seeing things that are right in front of him. Who among us has not seen things about ourselves that we don't want to see? Like, and I think you know it's it's blown out to like you know it's magnified to a huge extent. But the experience of not recognizing something icky about yourself because you don't want to see it is is like extremely human. Definitely, yeah. I mean, it's all very human. Yeah, to not see that that very obvious thing, even just, you know, in basic, I mean, even with the riddle stuff where you just, you're right in, in sort of linking it to the Sphinx too, of just like the thing, you know, there is just needs to be that one little tick of change for him to get it. Because it's just to like, understand the phrasing, like whether it is just that it sounded like an insult on his mom, or just simply that like, it, it just that part's true, just switch it you know and then like if you got that then you'd be fine but it's not yeah it's not it's more so that just it's not his brain wouldn't wouldn't get him there which right. is so often and you know it's like the number of times you'll ask somebody a question and they tell you the answer and you're like oh fuck like that was so obvious yeah. you know I, but I do that God. right like <laughs> yeah it's so I, that happens all the time I think for everybody whereas yeah it, it's just that when we're looking at it from a play that's become a thing and again like become a thing because of this idea from Freud that like all of this he knew and it was also subconscious and he intentionally like married <laughs> his mother, all that, you know, that's all bullshit. And, but it, it influences the way people understand that story. And so then you, you look, I kind of immediately judge Oedipus in this different way because of that. Um, oh, I had, Oh, and I was, I was going to say too, that when you're talking about the like inherited guilt too, cause there's also the whole, and it is my job to bring up, Cadmus at any point that where it's possible. <laughs> I'm contractually obligated to mention Cadmus. It's a pure requirement of myself. But there is the whole like idea of the curse on their whole line, right? Um, which is like really vaguely in a few myths, but is never fully laid out. But in theory, that whole line is cursed, and therefore, like, I don't know how many down the road Oedipus is meant to be. Um, but the idea of that there just is a curse in Thebes, like between Semele and and Ino and and Actaeon and all of these people, it, all this horrible shit happens. But they, it's not always. It's not like the curse of Atreus, where it's all linked back all the time. It's an interesting one where you can just lay it all out, and there's like some vague references, but ultimately it's like really disparate curses or disparate like 
fuck ups in people that then you know if you read a couple little things you can link it all back to to this like line of thebes and i just have to talk about that line of thebes all the time no well and I, god i one of the things that i wish we had would be more of the theban cycle of, of ethics yes. because like there's so much we get yeah just these hints at things and especially given how much thebes often function you know it's the not athens and mm. so, like, God, I would love to know what more and versions of the story of Thebes that aren't coming out of Athens, right? Because it's it's the anti-Athens in Athenian tragedy, which is mm-hmm. obsessed with Athens. And thinking about, like, if we had more accounts of stories about Thebes from Thebans or Spartan, you know, that just knowing what it looks like, because all of our, our ideas about ancient everything is so biased by the fact that it's predominantly Athenian stuff that survives like our literature mm-hmm. is so like Athenocentric that it I, I would love to know what those stories look like when you are not using it as a foil to talk about your own civic identity and and things like that mm-hmm. yeah I and Thebes is such an interesting one and they have this whole interesting like series of myths but yes other than a couple of plays that are Athenian and therefore like talking shit on Thebes in whatever way sometimes specific sometimes not you know other than those we really don't have much but like you're saying we, we know that there was a Theban cycle like I I would give my life for it I mean <laughs> Cadmus and Harmonia are like the reason I am in this whole world and that like 12 years ago I started writing a novel about them and then oh my just, god yeah and then like became this person that I am today <laughs> who's still trying to finish that novel but also is now like deeply involved in mythology and before that I literally had just like a I just liked it you know and then I researched that and was like okay cool I'm gonna get a classics degree and then now we're here this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. So is there, I mean, I feel like this is a perfect opportunity to be giving Sophocles more airtime than I ever do. <laughs> I am I am happy to geek out on several more Sophocles things. <laughs> Please. Yeah. So so we we've talked about um Women of Trachis and and Oedipus. So what what other Sophocles should I be giving a chance to that I haven't? <laughs> so so the one the one that I think so like because I think like Oedipus, uh, Tyrannus, or Rex, or you know whatever you want to call it. Um, Tyrannus. And Antigone are the one that they they mostly. The thing that I kind of love about the weird, like, and it's just a weird coincidence, but like the fact that we have these two titles, right? Oedipus Rex and Oedipus Tyrannus, mm-hmm. and and it's just like a weird convention of you know the Greek and the Latin and whatever. Um, yeah. But like Rex properly is like Basileus, like Tyrannus is mm-hmm. a different thing. And it's not it's not exactly a tyrant per se, but it's it's a different thing than than a Basileus. Like a Basileus is a, an inherited position by and large. Mm-hmm. Rex is an inherited position, and it's weird because Oedipus starts off. We think like he's a tyrannous, like he's he's a ruler who's come from outside and he's become the ruler. Um, and it turns out by the end we realize that he actually is he is the the Rex. He is the Basileus, right? That so that his his act like his legitimacy or his authority, why he's ruling, it turns out he is actually the ancestral king. Like he's the son of the king. Um, And so I, like, I think it's such a weird, like when people, you know, we go back, like, what, what do we call this play? And I I love that, like, between those two titles, that's actually the entire hinge of the play is like, (laughs) oh my God, we thought he was a Tyrannos. He thought he was a Tyrannos. It turns out that he was a Rex the whole time. See, that's extra interesting. I I jumped to it specifically because I'm like, why are we using a Latin word? But I love to hear about it in that way because yeah, of course, like there it's not like there's only one word for like that type of king in in Greek. So yeah. that's so much more interesting. So yeah, I think it's such a an interesting because a lot of people like know it as Oedipus Rex. I'm like, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's probably the more commonly used version. Um, but But I'm like, why? <laughs> but I have my Greek versus Latin issues. Right, you know, I, I usually like, you know, if for a classics audio, like for you know, I, I'm usually going to call it Oedipus Tyrannus, but yeah, if in a more broad, like if I'm just talking to like going to a high school or something and talking, I'm usually like Oedipus Rex. That's that's what they're familiar with. But yeah, I, I do love that that those two titles, like just by like dumb coincidence. I mean, I don't think there was any intentional thought about that process when they were like, what no. what will be the Latin name that we use for this? But that it it gets at that that tension between like why why is Oedipus the ruler here and what what claim to authority or what claim to legitimacy does he have and that it it turns out like oopsie doodles he was actually the the <laughs> proper king by a certain measure the whole time even though there's everything about him being king is also extremely improper yeah no that's extra fascinating also another human who says oopsie doodles or variations on that <laughs> word and I respect that <laughs> I also talk like I'm 85 sometimes <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I I also say heavens to Betsy sometimes. My, I got that one okay. from my mom. So yeah, I say good grief a lot, mm. which I feel like is is another a good one like that. Yeah, yeah. though also very Charlie Brown, but. So Sophocles plays. Yes, Sophocles plays. So I like. I feel like Antigone gets a lot of of airtime, and I don't. I you know, I love Antigone. I was a dramaturg for a production of Antigone that we did here, mm-hmm. um, and I, I love Antigone. But I because Antigone gets a lot of airtime, I um, I am going to to leave Antigone to the side. I think that's good. She's got a lot, and she's great. But she's great. But like you don't. You, yeah. You know, it's not hard to find out things about about Antigone. But I will say the production I was a dramaturg for was um, Jean-Louis' version, which is like a very different interpretation of it that I think. Mm. And there was another college in town that was doing like a version of like Sophocles, Antigone. And so having those two like within a week of each other, we, we brought the cast together and did like a little conversation about the different, Ooh. how the characters look different between the two productions, which I did think was super cool. Um, yeah. But yeah. So I, oh, I'm trying to think what would be my next favorite. Might be Philoctetes. Um, mm. So I so Philoctetes and Ajax and often get lumped together mm. because they they both kind of deal with the the casualties of like casualties the side effects the peripheral damage PTSD done by type. yeah and so people use them a lot the theater of war uses both of them as like PTSD kind of things but the thing so one of the things that I love about the Ajax is like yes you get you get Ajax as as this like I think very tragic though like there is to be fair he is trying to kill all of his fellow soldiers um so like motivation but like you get so there's so many like little interesting things about it because so he he kills himself halfway through the play and the second half of the play really is about Tecmessa um and Tucer and it's about it's about the people that got left behind and I think that is a really interesting when we think about like the the peripheral damage that war can do. I think um, it's it's really interesting from that perspective because you have his uh, had been a, a enslaved woman. She seems to they, it seems to be something closer to a, a wife, but not exactly mm-hmm. you know. And so I mean, how we how we think about that relationship is is complicated. But you get this this I think really poignant look at what all of the other people that are hurt by suffering or hurt by violence that are hurt by these kinds of things. And I also love that you, Athena is there and you get this, like the Athena Odysseus relationship there is so interesting because you in fact get like Odysseus has to be like, shit, Athena, like tone it down. Like you are, you are relishing in this man's pain too much. Like, Mm. and I just love those moments where, you get mortals commenting on, and this was something that came with like, with the Bacchae too, like, you, you know, or your boy Cadmus being like, yeah, like we fucked up. I get that. But this is not an appropriate response. And I, because we get so much of, by and large, like we get these depictions of the gods, like in Euripides all the time of like these gods that are just assholes. Um, and they're they're outside and they don't care. And like Hippolytus, you get so much of this, like the two gods, like it's just it's just pawns that they're like playing around with people for their own their own benefit. And but I like like, sure, the gods are dicks. Like that's that's a message to like, that's fine. But I think <laughs> I think when you get those more nuanced engagements with like, like, yes, like I know I know we like to see our friends do well and our enemies do poorly like I get that Athena but this is not 
this is not good. <laughs> what is happening here is not good. Um, and so I, I think that's like a really interesting moment in the in the Ajax. But yeah, it's it's the I, I think I'm going to say the Philoctetes is my favorite out of the two, though. Because <laughs> so for the Philoctetes, you um, just because not not everyone reads these plays, I'm do super quick synopsis. And I haven't covered either of these, so that's okay. perfect. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't want to be like rehashing too much. No. So with Philoctetes, um, he's been left on on Lemnos because he got injured and. Um, his his friends didn't like how much he was complaining about it um yeah. and it smelled bad <laughs> you got a snake bite right yeah and like it's festered and it's this wound and it his his buddies didn't like it, the smell and the complaining about it so they just they just leave him on an island um and it's so then but like now they need him now there's this this story and they you know speaking of like repressed myths and the things that don't get mentioned you know, Homer never talks about like these weird magic things. Like he's not a huge fan of like weird magic stuff. Um, and so you get kind of most of these things that seem to be like they're part of the epic cycle. But the idea that there's the the magic wooden statue that you got to get out of Troy for it to fall, mm. like the the or the the bow that you can't take Troy without the bow of Heracles, which Philoctetes has on Lemnos, and like these weird, they're kind of more almost more like folktale items. These like magic items that help our heroes do their thing. Homer seems to not like those. You just get a few weird mm. moments of like some talking horses or Aphrodite has this magic testos, like the little magic little girdle belt thing that, that Hera uses to seduce Zeus. But with, a, with very few exceptions, like the, all of the magic shit about Troy, like Homer doesn't want so much magic stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so here we get this version where like they got to go get the thing. And so you have Odysseus and Neoptolemus are coming to try and, and Odysseus really wants to trick because of course he does really wants yeah. to trick Philoctetes. He's um, a little dick. I love him. Yeah, he's he's like this is great. We're going to have a whole like we're going to dress up and we're going to pretend it's going to be great. He's such a fucking asshole and I love him so much. And like <laughs> Neoptolemus is like I don't feel great about this. Like we have marooned this man and like Neoptolemus is a monster and other like he is I was like, going to say yeah. Like not Ooh. but like he he does this version of him seems to have inherited a lot of Achilles being like so I, I love the moment where they have the the delegation comes to try and talk Achilles into coming back to fight. And mm. Odysseus, like, he just clearly has no time for Odysseus. Like, the like I hate, like, the gates of Hades, the man who says one thing and means another. Like, Achilles does not like this, like, tricksy, like, maneuvering, and he's got fancy words, he's covering up what he means. And so I think, like, Neop- this, this Neoptolemus has inherited a lot of that. Like, he might be, like, mm-hmm. violent, and he's a, you know, he kills Priam on that. Like, there's a lot of... of really monstrous things about Neoptolemus but this version at least is like I just don't think we should trick a dude that we abandoned on an island to steal his thing like (laughs) weird so you get like this kind of this tension between like do we do we try and like do we try and persuade him do we lie to him do we ask him nicely like what what are our options here and it's I think it's cool for a couple reasons because one you get this, it's it's kind of a, a mythologizing, I think it's putting into the myth stage, the tensions around, like, what are we doing about the fact that some children, like, you know, this anxiety around, like, the sophists in Athens, like, mm. kids are learning to be deceptive, and that seems like a problem. Um, so you get this kind of Odysseus as the representative of people who are learning how to use fancy words and learning about rhetoric, and they and they can convince people of bad things because their words are really pretty. And then you get Neoptolemus who's like, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's great idea but you know the 
the entire war rests on this. Like they do need to get the bow. And so what, you know, do you, do you take a chance that maybe you can do this in an honorable way? Or are you just like, fuck it. We got like, we got to do what we got to do. Let's just like hold them down and take the bow and run. And so like you have, you know, I, I think one of the, the really cool things about the play is that you, you wrestle with those kinds of questions so much. And like Neoptolemus and Philoctetes end up like having kind of having a conversation. Philoctetes is like, this is like, so the word for bow and the word for life are basically like beyond bios. And they're, so they, they, mm. there's kind of this punning between these, like, like my bow is my life. Like I, I have survived on this desolate Island because like I can hunt for stuff. Like I, I really need this bow. Like my, my entire livelihood, like my ability to keep surviving on where, remember y'all stranded me. Like my ability to not die here really depends on this bow. And then, so at the end, it's, it's our only extant deus ex machina ending for Sophocles. Hmm. And Heracles shows up and he's like, you know, he sets it all and like the kind of deus ex machina, like hero deified, apotheosized he's hero ex machina. Yeah. But yeah, he's a god. <laughs> and so he shows up and like sets everything right and we live happily ever after and we're going to heal Philoctetes. He's coming with him to Troy and like we get a happy ending after this. But it's right up till the ending where everything gets like miraculously put. I kind of, I go back and forth on how I feel about the ending because it's, it's so heartbreaking. And the fact mm. that we get this like very forced resolution to it just doesn't doesn't sit great with me because like up until that moment, it's probably the tragedy that just gets like gets me right in my feels the most because like Philoctetes just it's just brutal like what has happened to him and how he's been treated. Um, and a lot of times like people use this sometimes as a way of talking about people not doing right by veterans when they come home from war of like and you know people some of the same thing with with the Ajax, but he he has not he has not been done right by um and now they're going to take his bow and and this is this is not right and just that like that agony about about the awfulness of the world I, it feels unsad and this is i think one of the reasons why i am not always as big a fan of euripides um because the sort of nihilism or just kind of the bleakness of like the only like we have made a mess that's so big that only the gods can fix it, but then they do, mm. and that's not how life works, right? Mm. Um, and I think Sophocles plays a lot more kind of force you to sit with bad things, like they force you to sit with the suffering, and and the play. I mean, I mean, all tragedies for the most part are so much about how do we like? You never get to see the action. You never get to see people getting ripped to pieces or people like none of none of the violence ever happens on stage what happens on stage is people figuring out what do we do when bad mm -hmm. things inevitably happen when unimaginable horror inevitably happens like how do we respond to that how do we how do we go on how do we pick up the pieces when things are so bad and so I, I think I, I'm not a huge fan of like, it, it's nice every now and then. And I think I originally was like, oh man, it's so edgy that like we got these, you know, it's making you look at like the, it, it just feels a little bit sort of almost nihilistic mm -hmm. on some ways. And I think one of the things that I do love about Sophocles plays is, so at the end of the Trachinii, after like Heracles is maybe going off to be apotheosis on the pyre, but we don't get to see that. That's a more, you know, we probably are thinking that he's going to go he's going to become a god but we never we never get that resolution we never get that conclusion and then either Hylas his son or the chorus like the last lines are there's nothing here that is not Zeus and just just like mm. man like there is a god who ostensibly controls the universe this is his son he's this is this is just all happening and 
I don't know, fuck, what do we do with that? Like that, that ending I think is such a more powerful ending as opposed to, you know, we all trot over to the pyre and then Zeus like yells down from a crane, like (laughs) my son, you're a God now. (laughs) Yeah. Like that, that is not like, even if we know that's going to happen, like I think Sophocles doesn't give us that, that consolation or that resolution a lot. And I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the things in terms of like, as someone who is watching these plays or reading these, like that then you walk out of that story and, and have those convert, you know, you have those conversations with like, could this have been avoided? I don't know. Probably not. Like some of, you know, some of these stories, there were things you could have done differently in different places, but some of them are like irresolvable conflicts. Like by the time we get to the point of the play, things have already been set in motion. Somebody made a mistake. Somebody, a God was mad at you or whatever, whatever set the situation in motion, your ancestors made a mistake. But by the time, like there's this inevitable move towards towards pain, towards anguish, towards suffering. And I, I kind of love that Sophocles makes us like really sit with that because mm-hmm. I think when you, when you have an ending that ties up the things a little neater, um, I do, I think that's, that's just not what, you know, I mean, it's nice every now and then, but that's just not how life works. Like things, things don't get magically tied up and fixed most of the time, or at least not without an awful lot of work from people. And so I think the fact that Sophocles leaves you with the, like, can this be fixed? If, if this kind of pain, like how do, how does Hylas go on? His mother has just killed herself. His father is lit on fire and seemingly Hylas has no expectation that, that Heracles is going to become a god. So he's, He's just sitting there dealing, dealing with this. And I, so I think, I think that's one of the kind of beautiful things as much as like, I love a good tragic comedy. Like I, you know, Alcestis or the Helen, like I, I love those in for different ways. But I think, I think one of the things that's really cool about Sophocles is that he does make you kind of stare, stare into the abyss a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the other, just a cool, so people, I don't, I don't think this is how Sophocles intended this play, but mm a cool thing that some people have done in modern stagings of it. And it's, it's possible. I just don't, I just don't think it's, it's how Sophocles would have had in mind, but you know, it doesn't really matter what Sophocles had in mind. Um, there <laughs> are, been dead a while. There are people who treat, so at the end, Heracles shows up and like, you know, here, give them the bow, we'll go to Troy. There are people who suggest that, because uh, I think the actor, I, I'm, it, it's at least possible that the actor who played Odysseus played Heracles. Uh, I don't know mm. if we know for sure. Some plays, like we know for sure who doubled, and I don't know. I don't remember if we know for sure with this one, but it's possible it was the same actor. And there are some people who want us to see this ending as Odysseus dressed up as Heracles at mm. the end, and so that like instead of like the forthright like Neoptolemus winning the day with his not wanting to deceive Philoctetes, that we're we are meant to see this as as Odysseus dressed himself up like Heracles to get the bow because like he's like <laughs> trickery did win out in the, in the end. Yeah. And which I think is such a cool, just kind of thinking through that. Like I said, I don't think that's, I don't think that's how Sophocles would have originally staged it, but it's, it's such an interesting twist to think about, you know, what, what, what if this is like, because Odysseus is so tricksy. And like, I remember my mind being absolutely blown the first time someone pointed out to me that, there's no external corroboration for any of the stories that Odysseus tells. His men are all dead. There's no witnesses. There's no evidence. Like <laughs> we have no reason to think that he, that the Cyclops and like that any of these things happened because he could just make that up. 
Oh yeah, no one else ever saw the Lystragonian. Yeah, I and mean. the and the stories are so neatly <gasps> like it's such a good ring composition that it it does kind of make us wonder, did did he just make all of this up? Which is like I people, you know, people divide into like are you an Iliad person or an Odyssey person? And I just love how much the Odyssey never gives you firm footing. That like mm-hmm. maybe he had all these traumatic adventures or maybe he just ditched his men and was like whatever and it's telling the story that will get him that will get him home. So he's he's yeah. crafting a story that or his men died but like in a much less dramatic way, but he is telling these stories that that subtly emphasize all of the right things to make sure that he gets good hospitality and he gets sent home safely and like I love I I love the just how convoluted and how how unstable the plot is you know the like we have no idea what's going on which is kind of the experience of everyone who ever talks to Odysseus like are you telling the truth it sounded plausible <laughs> but like it would sound plausible <laughs> you're good with words mm. that's why I love the Odyssey too it's just it's so messy yeah. in this way where it's also not messy but it like it inherently is and yeah i'm an odyssey person yeah i very much like i have i have come around more to the iliad than i used to be i am there are like Mm. talking to people who really love the iliad i and there are i'm coming around you know i am seeing more things than i used to see in the iliad but yeah yeah i just i just love i'm very much an odyssey person yeah the iliad's amazing and it's so beautiful and you know it is yeah it's an incredible work but the Odyssey is just so many things. It's yeah. just so messy and weird. And Odysseus is so ridiculous. So yeah, I, I love it. But it's so interesting what you're saying with the like Deus Ex Machina or lack thereof too, which because so I, and I think it's probably the plays that I focus on and the ones that I've read, you know, in the last five years, but I never think of Euripides as being particularly into Deus Ex Machina because, you know, I love Medea, in, in which case like, you know, that just turns that all on its head where it's just she shows up in a dragon chariot and flies off with dead children. I, like, which I, 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 love. I love that she is her own deus ex machina because I think of yes. it very much as being like she she is her own deus ex machina and like this, like, you know, this elevation to her is like almost a divinity. Like, ugh, like I love, I love that play so much. Yeah. Well, and that ending, yeah, it's unreal. And so, uh, you know, I don't think of that as a traditional deus ex machina because I agree. I think she is it. And in that way that is so like visceral of, you know, this is the whatever you want it to be or whatever it was, you know, in that moment structure wise. But it, it is a thing that is used for the gods and Medea is showing up with her dead children and using it. And I love that. Um, and then I don't really think Bacchae has much because the deus is in the whole play. <laughs> um, and so it's just and. Like, I think Phoenician women, now I'm trying to think of, I did that one recently, but I can't think of whether there's much in there. So I just think my brain doesn't go specifically to it, but it's because of the plays that I focus on, and specifically just Bacchae and Medea are the ones that are, like, live inside my head. Um, But that's so interesting to see it that way, and then I, but I can definitely appreciate that it is much more interesting to, to sit in what is happening than have the god come in and just like, okay, that's all clean and good, which is sort of I mean, speaking of Odyssey, that's kind of how I see Athena in it, too, oh, in so absolutely. many ways. Yeah, she, like, she just is that, just rolls up and like, okay, well, let me just fix up everything that's gone wrong for you, and I'll just make it all better. <laughs> Which I, like, so the, this is not about tragedy, but the last book of the Odyssey, I think, is so interesting because, like, I remember when I first read the Odyssey in high school, um, 
and you know like the hero's journey was like the kind of thing we talked about but like it's not we might think it was like a, a traditional like happily ever after and then we get the last book we're like no this is a mess and it's not a, people are not okay with what he did he slaughtered like a Everyone. generation of men yeah. and he took a whole generation of men to Troy with him and they didn't come home so like this is a real problem and you know we get to see like the suitors in the underworld being like I don't know what just happened <laughs> Like, and I think I think the fact that we get this kind of subversive ending, I just love about because it it unsettles. You're like, oh, okay, he made it home and he got rid of the bad guys, and then that we get to see like the other people of Ithaca and the suitors in the underworld being like, yeah, that's that's not great. Like that it takes a god to come in and fix it. Like it it very much makes us question how much this is any kind of like happily ever after story. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I don't. I mean, my brain immediately connected that in a very separate kind of way to the end of the Iliad where, you know, I mean, I, I think it's, and I don't know any of the details on this, but they really are such different epics. Like, oh, so much. In so many ways. But that, but still the idea that I think the Iliad throughout really does give you the idea that we're not supposed to be siding with the Greeks, even though it's about them. But the end really clinches it. And I don't remember if it's in the last book or if the last book is just the funeral games. But because but I think it is the last book, the preem mm-hmm. yeah. coming. Yeah, I think so. But just ending. Yeah, it, it's at least very close. Yeah. Very late, late books. I think it's yeah. 24. It could be 23. I feel like it's much more powerful. It's 24. So I'm going to yeah, assume. Let's it. Say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, like ending with that where it's like, OK, we've hinted at it to you that like the Greeks are not heroes here. They're really fucking shit up for no good reason but here's the end where it's like here's the tragedy of a father who really did nothing wrong whose son did nothing wrong whose city did nothing wrong and it's just all a mess and everything's just at the hands of these like warmongering (laughs) greeks who just like rolled in to fuck shit up but yeah it's a similar i mean i feel like that's a connection i've made between the two in a way that there's not a ton of connections in my mind between them suggesting you know one's a sequel or the other were written by the same person so that but this idea that like it ends with like hey was any of this good were any of the people you've been (laughs) following were they good or were they all sort of like messy and either liars liars and murderers or just like angry and murderers and anyway i love the odyssey and the iliad clearly (laughs) i just don't end sentences always like that i just fucking love it i just fucking love this um i so because one of the things i was thinking about while i was listening to that conversation about the bakai about how much like where we see ourselves in the story like is one of the things i just love i mean about myth in general that but also tragedy specifically because i think i was thinking about medea and medea is a play that i have like in different ways related to over like just over years of of reading it and being in different places in my own life and mm-hmm. like what you think so I think a lot of times we like what is this play about and you know it's a story of and like if we if we bring it down to like like what is the central you know Antigone is a story of the you know obligations to the family and religious obligations versus obligations to the state like that's what it is about and it what we think a play is about, I, I think is so interesting because it, it has so much to do with like where we see ourselves in that story. And, mm-hmm. you know, so like Medea, I, it was the first play. I was in a, a myth class and it was a, a breath requirement. And 
someone said something to the effect of like bitches be crazy like was sort of the they were like you know what do we how do we feel about this and Mm -hmm. I was just coming out of like a nasty breakup and man did I like whirl around on him and have some words about I was like first of all I don't think she did anything wrong and second of all like she was fully in her right mind too like that's something I think to make very clear yeah in that she knows exactly what the fuck she's doing and she's doing yeah and like that was (laughs) kind of the moment when I was like I have never cared this much about my like I was an engineering major. Like I've never cared this much mm. about what I'm doing in those classes as like I have just by like lighting that. Like if you know, if this is a thing that you can spend your life doing is engaging with these texts that have me like so fired up. Like I maybe I should do that instead. But you know, so like years later, I was so I was in a I was living separate from my partner, and as I had a job at, at Notre Dame, and you know, and the thing that really jumped out at me was how like I, I was. I was very like sad and kind of resentful about like what academia demands of people that you're moving every year and you're giving up so much of your life and you're away from your family on the job market. And I was just like in a real, and I was reading Medea for, for teaching a class. And like the thing that I saw in it was like someone who gave up so much. She left her home. She gave up so much, her family, her this, and for what? Like that, and that kind of anger and that rage about being asked to give things up and not not feeling like that was valued, right? Which is like not something I'd ever seen in Medea before. But at the time, I was like, oh, "This play is about my anger at, at <laughs> contingent job market and academia," and you know, which like is literally zero percent what Agropides would have intended. But like, I think one of the things that is so cool about these that where you are and where you position yourself in the myth and like because myth is flexible enough to do that that you can like you know oh I feel like I am this character in this moment and this story is a really valuable way like thinking about how many people get like mythology based tattoos and things that like I have you know I have Atalanta on my thigh like how much these kind of flexible stories are are a way that we kind of metaphorically can talk about our lives and I think that's one of the things that is so so cool about and so when you see these different versions of tragedy like who who is Helen right like is Helen this person or is Helen that person and that you you are telling a very different story about what it means to be a woman what it means to be a pretext for bad behavior by other people what it means to have agency over your own story what it means to you know that these these stories can it can be the story of because it's so freaking weird. I love Euripides Orestes, like, because it's just a mm. disaster of a play. Like, it's it's a mess. It's It ends with, like, shit is on fire and, and Apollo shows up and is like, I'm going to – you marry you and I guess we're good here. Like, it's, it's just a disaster <laughs> of a play. Like, I love it because it's so messy. Emma was telling me about that too, and I haven't read that play since university, and now I'm obsessed with reading it's, it again because they were they were, they said such similar things to that, and I'm like, okay, shit, I can't. I was actually in a radio play recording of Orestes oh my God. in university. Yes, I've literally I never seen anyone it perform it at all because it is so like because I so. <laughs> I like the plays that I have been any part of are like very nor- like we did we did a Hippolytus and you know been involved with some Antigone like but like very normal like traditional yeah. plays. No one, no one. Perf- I've never seen anyone perform <laughs> the Alcestis. I've never seen anyone perform like Orestes because like, it's. I gave me I gave my first uh, like academic conference paper on on the Orestes and like it's just it it's so it's so weird. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I don't remember that part. I just need to, like, I don't remember it being that weird. I actually could have sworn we did Electra in the radio play, but I, like, reached out to my prof a couple years ago because I wanted to get a copy of it, which I'm still hoping to get. Um, and he assured me that it was a Rusty's. <laughs> and I'm just like, I could have, because I played Electra, and I was like, I could have sworn that I was the lead, but like, whatever. I guess I, mean, I was the second. Because like, Oresti spends most of the play being like, he is very much like, he's, I mean, he's, he's, maybe it's it's like a mental health like psychosis maybe it's something mm-hmm. like that um maybe he's being pursued by the furies but no one can see them which again like right as opposed to the Aeschylus version like the Euripides version like is this all in his head is it are they hallucinations are they delusions or can just no one see the furies because they're only pursuing him and they're not visible to everybody and like we never get an answer mm-hmm. to that whereas like Aeschylus tell like the humanity like they, they show up they're there and they look scary and whatever yeah but it leaves it like really ambiguous whether, you know, he's he's having symptoms that, I mean, there, it's symptomology that shows up in like our Hippocratic of like, of madness of, you know, and you, you these are symptoms that are like connected to physical ailments in, mm-hmm. in our Hippocratic corpus. But like we, I mean, we kind of don't know what, what is going on, like look, you know, how we're supposed to read it. So he's, he's, he's very unwell um, and he's kind of coming in and out of cogency because um, mm-hmm. he's he's hallucinating the about the the furies and so Electra's kind of doing the most of the yeah so maybe that's what it was yeah, yeah. so I mean it, it, it's kind <laughs> of the lead um, but I love like just it's, it's, it's one of my favorite Helens of any like of any because you get this beautiful line like Helen's there and like apparently we've just we're supposed to just get over the Trojan War thing and Electra clearly is not over Helen at, like she's just no fan of Helen and she's like what uh, as evidence for what a trash person Helen is she's like you know how you're supposed to cut your hair when you're in mourning she like trimmed it so she'd still look cute like that's that's Helen I just love it like it's such a petty especially when you compare it with like you know with like the with the Helen where she's so clever and she's so smart and she's savvy and she like she's a victim of this entire situation like gods have been Mm -hmm. using her for dicking over everybody and then you get like you know by the same author this Helen who is like doesn't want to mourn too much because that she won't be cute if she's getting too into the morning. And I like I just love the distance between those two, like the same character, but like such such different versions of, of yeah. what she is. Oh, see, and this is why I love Euripides. But you've sold me on Sophocles too. <laughs> give so. give Sophocles a chance. I <laughs> no, you I think you've sold me on I, his merits. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> you know, I I do really like uh your and like I mean part of it also that kind of the selection bias of like we have a random sampling of Euripides, like an alphabetically just whatever. Whereas like for Sophocles, a lot of the plays that we have by Sophocles, like we're because they were super popular. Whereas like we do Mm. not have the most popular plays by Euripides. We have the popular ones and then just like H's and I's and whatever. (laughs) Great. Like, so I mean, I think our, our sampling bias is so, so different because it's, these were not like ones that were intentionally preserved as like the greatest hits of Euripides. Whereas. I know, just luck. Like, yeah. So, but I do think when thinking about like what it, what it's like for the average people around, like that's one of the things that I've started really thinking about with the choruses because the choruses usually are like the, the random normal people. And like with, you know, people get really hung up on like, is Antigone right? Or is Creon, you know, and Antigone's like doing what the gods want. And the gods do like co-sign what she does in the end. Like Theresius is like, yeah, the gods do not like what you're doing, Creon. But like, I find Creon so much more sympathetic when you think about it from the Thebans perspective that like, they bear, like we just had what is effectively a civil war, right? In the seven against Thebes. And now this, 
this fucked up family like is like how many generations of Thebans like normal Theban people have to die we got the plague from Oedipus we got a civil war like now now he's trying to like put some semblance of order back in place and and you're willing to risk it all for your brother like could you just take the L on this one and let the city be like and I think that's such you know and that's it's not ever anywhere explicitly in the Sophocles text but like that idea of like the chorus is going through it and like it's always the elites it's always the powerful families that are doing all of this stuff and just normal people have to suffer the consequences and I think sometimes yeah. that gets lost because the plays don't necessarily direct us to look at the the plight of the average people there but you know the chorus is like average citizens would have served in the chorus, like performed as chorus members. And mm. so, and like, I really have over the years gone from being like, I don't know, choruses are weird old like little song and dance interludes, I guess, which like is, you know, as a classics undergrad, it's like, I don't get this chorus stuff. You get to like skip through yeah. it because you just want to keep reading. Yeah, yeah I want to get, get past like, it. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. But like, there's too much reading. Yeah, this is, yeah. I don't understand what's going on. There's like some rivers I've never heard of doing something like, <laughs> but I think the, when you think about that, like that was the place where, and like, if you've served in, if you've been in a chorus, you also are sort of qualified. Like, I think you would judge the choruses a lot more because you're like, I know, like, when I was in the chorus, I hit the choreography and, like, Steve over here, like, can't do his dance moves for <laughs> shit. Like, and, but, like, the, also that's, I think that's the place where the the audience is identifying, you know, that that's the closest link to the audience, whether or not we think that the chorus is the internal audience or they're this or they're that. But, like, Mm-hmm. That is that is the place where like physically that is the only seat you've actually sat in in the play. You've never played Oedipus. You've never played, mm-hmm. you know, Joe Cost. You've never been the elites. You have only ever been the marginalized characters, the old women, the old men, the enslaved people. Like that's that's the only role you've ever played. And I think that would matter in terms of how you are thinking about, you know, you're leaving the theater being like, yeah, I kind of don't like that the super rich, like the generals or the this or that, that, like we're, I guess we're going to Sicily for an expedition. Like no one asked me how I felt about that. Like, you know, how come, how come I have to go do this because, you know, some of the rich people in the city, some of the powerful people, the, the elites want us to be fighting this battle. Like that, mm-hmm. does, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I kind of think like, it kind of feels like they're being a bit of an Agamemnon right now and I'm not a fan. <laughs> and so like, I think, I think that like the, the elite individuals who are making problems for everyone else and the everyone else who has to deal with the the consequences of decisions that they didn't get to be part of making, I think is like a really salient part of, of how these things work. So yeah, I think the, like the chorus is, has become a much more important part of how I, how I think about tragedy over the years. Yeah. I, I found that generally just like the more I pay attention to it, the more I realize quite how important they were, but I've never thought about it in that way of just like the average person. I think that's so important. I also didn't realize that like average people would be in the chorus, which is adds to that. Cause I think inherently the chorus is already like the voice of those people but then if they were actually in it as well like that's huge yeah I, I wish I, I I ran the numbers at one point about like you know if we're assuming not too much over like roughly what percentage of the Athenian populace at any given time would have probably like just to get an estimate and like it was a lot higher than I thought it would be when you hmm. imagine that you know you're doing you got three three tragedians or and you know they're training the chorus and that's you know that like the chorus is getting paid and it's like a like civic duty and you know some rich person is, is funding it. It's one of their like the liturgies. Mm-hmm. And and so yeah, it being this kind of like it's not quite tax dollars going to support, but it's it's something, you know, sort of akin to that, that like the state mm-hmm. is insisting that we need to 
pay and train citizens to to do this this thing and that it's like it's kind of a religious thing but it's kind of a civic thing but it's kind of you know and that so I think I think that idea the fact that you have the the population coming to this thing that is also like you know you your friends in a play you're gonna you're gonna go watch them be in the play you're gonna go see how they do and you're gonna pay attention to to that part whereas like our our main like our three actors were professionals and they get more professional Mm -hmm. as time goes on so people who do like a great falsetto that can play with you know in the same way like for Shakespeare and stuff like you need you Mm -hmm. need men who can play compelling women and so yeah I think I think the chorus is really a place where as much as we can tend to gloss over it like ancient audiences I think would have been paying a lot of attention to the chorus and we have accounts of like during the Peloponnesian War people who were prisoners of war like got treated much better because they like could sing the the latest you know like the the latest Hamilton song or whatever you know like they had the latest chorus and that that there there was some real cultural currency there of of like oh yeah I went to that play and let me let me sing the third choral ode from from whatever for you like that I think it was I think it was a Euripides chorus that like got them out of I've heard I heard that story or a variation on it and I'd forgotten about it because it's so good yeah yeah I just love the idea of like you know like yeah I went you know I went to see Hamilton like do you want me to sing that song about my you know I'm not gonna throw away my shot because I think I know like most of the words pretty well and (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) like that that version of like but it you know it it so it seems clear that ancient people really did care deeply about the chorus in a way Mm -hmm. that that I think you know it's very easy for us to not play ignore that and just pass on by like let's get to the action what's gonna happen next who's killing who what are we doing yeah oh I love that that's so thrilling I just oh my gosh I (laughs) honestly and I say it every damn time but this is my favorite part of my (laughs) goddamn job it's so funny because sometimes I'll like go into a conversation I'm just like you know I'm like feeling worn out or you know whatever it might be I'm just like okay you know and then as soon as I'm in it I'm like well this is incredible like I'm learning so much all the time it's never ending it's fucking best so this has been the best of but oh my oh, god, this has been so, so much. This has been so much fun. It was a delight oh. to, and yeah, I I very much enjoyed going off on all <laughs> kinds of tangents about things. But I am sorry that it's going to make your work harder in the editing process. No, honestly, I mean, for what I I love the tangents. This that's why I do this because especially with academics, like you're made for tangents. <laughs> so I just like set it up and then just sit here and like smile and listen, and it it's every time. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you so much. No, this such was a wonderful. thrill. I'm this was so much fun. Oh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening. I do have to tell you that I had to cut out a whole bit about cocktails and ancient drinking games just because it did not fit with the episode and it was going to run too long otherwise. But oh, I have not mentioned this to Amy yet, so hopefully she's in for it. But I would so love to have an episode dedicated to cocktails about ancient myth, you know, especially with my book coming out, but also specifically drinking games at ancient parties, symposia, because they had a bunch of drinking games. And isn't that just the coolest fucking thing you've ever heard? Anyway, that is all to say, this episode was so incredible. Amy is so much fun. And I just absolutely loved talking Greek tragedy and Sophocles. And obviously we talked Euripides too, because how could we not? But just learning all these new things, having these new ideas of 
episodes that I can cover, all, all these different plays that I haven't visited before. It's just always so exciting. Such a reminder that there is so much content left for this podcast. It's never ending. The ancient Greeks were just really cool. I think that's the long and short of it, right? I mean, God, they are just really fucking fun people. You can find a quick list of all of the plays that we talked about in today's episode in the episode's description, just in case you want to look into them on your own. But also, you know, don't look too deep because like hell if I'm not covering these on the podcast very soon. Thank you all so much for listening. You are all the best. I am Liv and I love this shit. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.